Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life. And I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at uh, the subject of grace and then look at what the Bible has to say about the doctrine of grace. But one thing that I think is important for us to understand is one of the most common misunderstandings of grace, which has its roots in, uh, for lack of a better term, Calvinistic theology that arose in the early to mid-16th century. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin was a protege of or a contemporary with Martin Luther. And as you uh, probably recall, uh, that in 2017, there was the marking of the 500th year of the Reformation movement. And so Luther began his uh, most noted work in the year 1517, John Calvin uh, published the Institutes of the Christian Religion in the 1530s or 1540s. And that uh, 1,500-page, two-volume set continues to be a standard uh, reference work and uh, textbook at almost every uh, prominent denominational uh, seminary uh, across America. And so here we are almost 1,500, I mean 500 years after the work of John Calvin and his influence is still heavily felt in the religious world today. And, but modern Calvinistic thought, and by the way, let me just, let me say this. Uh, because sometimes, you know, in the church, sometimes we get caught up in church speak. There are words and phrases that we use that we expect that we know that other Christians also uh, use. For example, member of the church. That's that's a that's a you know that's code language among members of the Church of Christ, right? You know, he or she is or is not a member of the church. That's that's language, by the way. That's that. As far as I can tell, we're the only ones that use that language. Now, there's nothing wrong with the phrase. It's perfectly good, reasonable, logical to use. But it, what I, the point is is that is that within our within the brotherhood, we use words and phrases that other people don't understand. And this is also true among other religious groups. And so you very rarely ever hear the word Calvinist or Calvinism anymore. What you hear is the phrase Reformed Theology. Reformed Theology. Now, I don't think, if I remember correctly, other than this right here, that Reformed Theology, that's the only time you're going to hear me say Reformed Theology so far as the PowerPoint is concerned. I'm going to use the term Calvinism. Because that's what Reformed Theology is. Reformed Theology is Calvinism. And Calvinism, uh, in large part, has rightfully so gotten a bad name. And so, rather than calling it what it is, they've given it another name to try to soften it in the, in the eyes or the ears of the hearer. But there are men, uh, R.C. Sproul recently passed away in the last year or so. He was a very prominent Calvinist uh, theologian. Uh, guys that are still alive today and writing a number of books 
John MacArthur Jr., a very prominent, well-known, well-respected uh, Calvinist. Uh, also, uh, uh, John Piper. Uh, these guys have an incredible presence in the denominational world, have an incredible presence online with their writings, uh, their commentaries, and whatnot. So these are guys that are staunch, old-time, hardcore, hard-shell, hyper-Calvinists. They are Calvinistic to their very core. But then there's some hip guys, like Tim Keller and Francis Chan, who, they're not, well, maybe Keller, but not Francis. Francis Chan is a blue jeans t-shirt and a real hip-looking jacket kind of guy. You know, wearing tennis shoes. And, and, and these guys are also Calvinists. Now, Keller is an overt Calvinist. Chan is a closet Calvinist. In fact, if you do some research about Francis Chan, uh, is Francis Chan a Calvinist? You'll find literally thousands of web pages d- designed to rebuke Chan for the fact that he won't come out and refer to himself as a Calvinist. But he is one. He is one. But these are guys that are writing books about preaching. Tim Keller's written a number of books about preaching. Francis Chan may be, may be one of the, probably the most beloved and well-known uh, uh, religious writer uh, of the last five or ten years, as writing on a popular level, where, where instead of... Chan's books are not necessarily written for preachers. They're written for just the average, the average person, the average Bible, uh, average Bible student. And so, but these guys are making Calvinism cool again. And uh, they're drawing a very large audience of young denominational theologians. And so, uh, but uh, to summarize Calvinism, because again, I just don't want to throw the idea of Calvinism out there uh, and not define what it is I'm talking about. I'll give you an example. Uh, Brother Alan Hires was talking a number of years ago, preaching that, now it may have been, it may have been at uh, Polishing the Pulpit, I can't remember, but but uh, he told the story about the preacher who was preaching about the day of Pentecost and that the church was established on the day of Pentecost and the gospel was preached for the first time and the conditions of salvation were preached on the day of Pentecost and over and over and over again, the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And uh, one of the guys in the audience when the preacher got through, he walked up to the preacher and he said, he said, I believe everything that you have just said about the about the church and the gospel and the day of Pentecost. He says, I just have one question. The preacher said, what's that? The man said, what is the day of Pentecost? In other words, he'd been talking about it for 30 minutes, but he just assumed his audience knew what he was talking about, and he did not. So when I say Calvinism, I want you to understand exactly what it is that I'm talking about. Now, Calvinism can be summarized in five points. Five points. And it's often summarized with the acronym TULIP, where each letter in the word TULIP represents one of the five primary doctrines of Calvinism. And they are total depravity. That is, that all men have been tainted with the sin of Adam. And as such, do not possess free will. That every man has, has inherited the sin of Adam, and as such does not possess free will. You is unconditionally election. The election simply means to be chosen. We believe in the doctrine of election. If, if we, because the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. But it does not teach the doctrine of unconditional election. 
But it does teach them. Paul spoke and Peter spoke to the elect. So there is a doctrine of election, but not the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election. Unconditional election says that before God ever made the world, He individually specified every single person who was going to be saved and every single person who was going to be lost, and nothing would ever change that. So before God ever made the world, He already picked who was going to heaven, and He picked who was going to hell. And that you don't have any choice in the matter. If you're going to heaven, there ain't nothing you can do about it. And if you're going to hell, there ain't nothing you can do about it. That's why it is called unconditional. God made the choice, and that is it. Then L is limited atonement. And so this only follows. Since God only elected a few people to be saved and most to be lost, then the death of Jesus was only for the elect. In other words, if you're not one of the elect, Jesus did not die for you. And by the way, I've had a number, I have had a number of discussions with Calvinists, and they will come right out and say that. If you're not one of the elect, Jesus did not die for you. And yet you can tell them, now wait a minute, I thought the Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the whole world in 1 John 2 and verse 2. I thought God wants all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. And you can go to verse after verse after verse, and, and, and they say, well, it don't mean that. It don't mean that. And so the doctrine of limited atonement teaches that the blood of Christ was only shed for the elect and not for anybody else. That means atonement means salvation, justification. Limited means only if you can get it. You know, a limited time, limited scope. Then you have the irresistible grace of God. That is, you're lost as you can be, but if you've been unconditionally elected, at some point in time, God is going to zap you. With His grace. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. And God's going to give it to you. That's why it's what? Irresistible. It's irresistible grace. So God's just going to put it on you. You don't even know that you need it. You don't even know that you want it. But you're going to get it. And like a bad virus, once you get it, you can't get rid of it. Because that's number five, the perseverance of the saints. Because see... If you didn't have any choice to be saved and God had to save you completely of Himself without any input or desire on your part, if God saved you and you didn't have anything to do with it, you cannot undo what God has done. And that's where you get the doctrine of once saved, always saved. That you can't undo what God has done. Now that is Calvinism in a nutshell. Now look, we could spend a five-night meeting talking about each one of these individuals. And I'm not even going to give you the verses. Look, you're an intelligent audience. You can you, you either know or you can find the verses that refute each one of these. There's not one thing about this doctrine that's true. Not one. Not one. You know, not one out of five, not zero out of five. They are all patently false and anti-biblical. Now... Calvinism misrepresents the sovereignty of God as requiring God to do every single thing in the universe. Now, there is some division among the Calvinists on this point. There are some 
what you call normal Calvinists who say, now God gives you free will to choose vanilla or chocolate ice cream. But He doesn't give you free will to desire to be saved. Then there are what I call the hyper-Calvinists who believe that God has decreed every single thing in this world from the beginning of time and that everything that is going to happen has already been decreed and nothing can ever change it. Right? Do you understand? When I find a man, when I find a man who believes that, here's what I asked him. Do you look both ways before you cross the street? You show me a man who believes that God has decreed every single thing in the universe to happen, and I'm going to ask that man, do you look before you cross the street? You say, well, and you see where I'm going with this, right? But now I'm going to give you an illustration that's going to make it stick in your mind. You ever see a cartoon character called Wile E. Coyote? We all know who Wile E. Coyote is, right? Now, Wiley Coyote, he's chasing who? Roadrunner. And they're going through the desert, and the Roadrunner runs. Now, this is a railroad track right here, right? Roadrunner crosses a railroad track at a thousand miles an hour. Never even looks. Coyote runs. Stops. Looks down the track. Ten miles down the track, what's he see? Nothing. Looks ten miles this way down the track, what's he see? Nothing. Bam! One step onto the track, and he's going to get drilled by a train, right? You know why? Because he's a Calvinist. Because it was foreordained by, by the cartoon creators that the coyote is going to get run over by a train. That's Calvinism. That's Calvinism. That no matter what you do, you're either going to go to heaven or get run over by a train. Now, you'll remember that, won't you? And teach your kids that next time you catch them watching the coyote. You say, kids, that's Calvinism right there. Y'all stay away from that. Now, because man lacks all free will, God has to do everything for him in matters of salvation. Man cannot even know he is lost or desire to be saved without direct divine intervention. Thus, Calvinism vehemently denies any response or work on man's part and usually goes to Ephesians 2, Verses 8 and 9 that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. God has foreordained that we should walk in them. But how do we reconcile Ephesians 2 with James 2? Because James said, You see then how that by Works a man is justified and not by faith only. And so you have Ephesians 2 that says 
You're not saved by works. You have James 2 that says you are saved by works. Let me ask you a question. Is this a necessary contradiction? Obviously, you all know the answer to that question is no, because you're good Christians and you know the Bible doesn't contradict itself. The question is then, we know it's not a contradiction, so how do we explain it or reconcile it? And here it is. Consider these two statements. Dave is taller than Todd. Dave is not taller than Todd. Are these two statements necessarily contradictory? Are they necessarily... They appear contradictory, right? They appear on face value to be contradictory. But are they not necessarily contradictory? That Dave is taller than Todd, Dave is not taller than Todd. Y'all don't want to answer, do you? I see you. You answer when you think you know the answer. Now you think I'm trying to trick you. But you don't want to answer. Alright? So... Let's look. That handsome fellow there on the right is me. That less handsome man on the left is Dave, my brother-in-law. Dave is taller than Todd, right? The guy on the right is a dear friend of mine whose name... It's Todd. He's big Todd, and I'm little Todd. And that's what we call one another. That's how he's in my phone, big Todd. I say, hey, Siri, call big Todd. Hope she didn't hear me. Dave is not taller than Todd. Dave is taller than Todd. Dave is not taller than Todd. You can see it, can't you? Now, what's the difference? Different tides. If the Bible says we're not saved by works, and then turns around and says another place that we are saved by works, then what do we know? Different tides. Different works. There's one kind of work under consideration in one text, and another kind of work that is under consideration in another text. But they're both called works, but they're not the same kind of works. Now, Calvinism begins and ends with God's sovereignty. That is, God is either the author of all things or He's the author of none. That's the Calvinistic position. But let me ask you, is there not another way? In other words, are these the only two possibilities that God is the author of all things, the author of none? Or is there a third is there a third option? In other words, is there a way for God to exercise his sovereignty that doesn't fit either of these things at the top? If you guessed yes, you guessed correctly. Now, the first time I put this PowerPoint together was back in um October, back in October, and I held a meeting in Cleburne, Texas. And you know, Texans are really insufferable people. If you know very many Texans, you know what I'm talking about. They're just, they're insufferable. You know, they think because they're from Texas, they're better than everybody else. We all know that's false. 
So I put this together, and so I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, and you'll see how, how I gouged them here in a minute. This is the, by the way, at one time was Texas a sovereign nation? Yes, it was. It was a sovereign nation. Before it became a state, it was a republic. It was the Republic of Texas. So now we're going to present the Republic of Texas with King Stephen F. Austin. All right? Probably the most famous Texan that ever lived, right? So Stephen F. Austin is the king of the Republic of Texas. Now, as the king of Texas, King Austin here has set forth Six, and I just, I just, I just left them blank. But you know, six fictitious terms or uh, 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 qualifications for citizenship. Okay, in other words, King Austin says, if you want to be a citizen of Texas, you have to meet these six criteria. Doesn't matter what they are, just for the sake of illustration. Now, question: As the sovereign ruler of Texas. Does he have the right to make that rule? He sure does. He's the king. We know what a king is, right? A king is a one-man rule. What the king says goes. So as the sovereign ruler of the Republic of Texas, King Stephen F. Austin has the right to determine the qualifications of citizenship. But here's the key question. Does an individual's acceptance of and adherence to the king's terms of citizenship in any way invalidate his grace or deny his sovereignty? See, as the king, you live in the country at the king's, at the king's pleasure, right? A man only lives in the nation at the pleasure or the grace of the king. And so when the king says, here are six criteria by which you must adhere, to which you must adhere, if you want to be a citizen, if I want to be a citizen, what do I got to do? I got to do those six things, right? I got to meet those six criteria. Now, does that invalidate his sovereignty? No. What does it really do? It declares my belief in his sovereignty. In other words, you the king, you get to make the rules. And I want to live here, therefore, I'm going to live by the rules that you have set forth. So I'm really affirming his sovereignty, right? And when I meet those criteria, I become a recipient of his grace. Isn't that right? That he allows me to be a citizen of his kingdom. Now, our intent tonight is to present the biblical case for grace and its role in salvation. Biblical grace is manifested in the following manner. God's grace, which gives to man God's law, which God through his, which man through his faith obeys, thereby receiving God's reward. And we might add, and I don't think it's on, yeah, which can never be considered as earned or merited. Does that make sense? God's grace gives to man God's law, which man through his faith obeys, thereby receiving the grace of God, the gift of God, the reward of God, which can never ever be misconstrued as being deserved or merited or earned. Are we on the same page? 
Now, I'm going to make this, I'm going to set this case out very quickly. In Genesis chapter 6 through 8, we have the case of Noah. And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, we find that Noah found something in the eyes of the Lord. What was it? Grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, how did that grace manifest itself to Noah? Through that law. When God wanted to manifest His grace to Noah, He gave him a law. What was the law? Build an ark. That's the law. Build an ark. Build it this long, this wide, this tall. Build it out of this material. Pitch it inside and out with pitch. Put levels in it. Put a door on the side. A window on the top. That's, that was God's law, right? But it was the manifestation of His grace, right? Did God owe that to Noah? He didn't owe that to Noah. So Noah, by his faith, obeyed. Genesis 6, 22. Genesis 7, verse 5 says, Thus Noah did. According to all that God commanded him, so did he. God's grace gave to Noah God's law, which Noah through his faith obeyed and then received the reward. Hebrews 11 and verse 7. By faith Noah being warned of things not yet seen, built an ark to the saving of his household. Noah and his family survived the flood. That was the reward of their obedience. Did they earn it? Did they merit it? Did they deserve it? Did they put God in their debt by building that boat? No, 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 and no. So we ask these questions. True or false? Noah was saved by grace. True. True or false? Noah was saved by grace without any works of obedience. False. Number three. By the way, it didn't come up like this on my computers. Noah's obedience invalidated God's grace and sovereignty. False. Next illustration. Joshua 6 in the walls of Jericho. Chapter 6, verse 2. God said to Joshua, See, I have given you Jericho. Question. Was he in possession of it when God said he had it? Was he in possession of it? No. What did God say? I have... What? Given it to you. I've given it to you. That's God's grace. But how's He going to get it? By God's law. You're going to get it when you walk around one time a day for six days and then without saying, a, don't make a peep. Seven times on the seventh day, and on, my, on the signal, you blast the trumpets and shout. That was God's law, right? That was the law. And that's exactly what they did. They did exactly what God said. And you t- Now, you tell me what happened to them walls. 
They fell. I love the, the Bible says, they fell down flat. Those walls were 40 feet thick and over 100 feet tall in some places. They found that place. I mean, this wasn't some picket fence they was walking around. Those walls fell down flat. And Hebrews again, 11 and verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell. When? After they had been encompassed for seven days. Question. Jericho's walls fell by grace. True or false? True. We know they fell by grace because walking around a building won't never make it fall down. Right? There's 400,000 people. 400,000 people in Metro Columbus. You could get every one of them and walk around this church building all day long, all month long, all year long, and at the end of the year, this building's still going to be standing, right? And this building, as fine as it is, is not built nearly as stout as the walls of Jericho. Everybody knows walking around a wall don't make it fall down. And there wasn't a Jew alive that said, Did you see us? We made those walls fall down. Can you imagine a Jew saying something like that? Look how good we are. Look how strong we are. I stomped my feet really hard. And I made them walls fall down. And a Jew alive would have ever thought that, would they? Those walls fell by grace. Jericho's walls fell by grace. Apart from any works of obedience. True or false? False. Israel's obedience invalidated God's grace and sovereignty. False. False. Now, finally, illustration of grace, the gospel and God's plan of salvation. God's grace. Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. What's it done? Teaching us. It's appeared unto all men. Teaching us. Teaching us what? To deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The the grace of God teaches me what not to do and the grace of God teaches me what to do. Deny, deny, deny. But then what? Live, live, live. That's the grace of God. That grace has been manifest in God's law in the gospel plan of salvation. John 8, 24, except you believe that I am, you're dying your sins. Acts 17, 30 and 31, God commands all men everywhere. That's pretty inclusive. All men everywhere to repent. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says we must confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And we must be immersed, Mark 16, 15 and 16. He who believes and is baptized, shall be saved. Not he who believes will be saved and can be baptized later. That's not what the book says. It says, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Now, I know y'all have heard this. Somebody said, well, it says, but he who believes not shall be condemned and doesn't mention baptism in the second half of the verse. You ever heard that? That's about the most foolish thing I think I ever heard. Here's my response to that. 
And there's twofold. Number one is, say, diagram, diagram Mark 16, 16. Diagramming. I hated sentence diagramming when I was in high school. I don't even know if they still teach that anymore. It'd be a very valuable lesson. Diagram Mark 16, 16. You'll see from the diagram, belief in the gospel and baptism are both necessary to be saved. But here's the real response I give. Say, look, what does the verse say? You want to talk about what the verse tells me about how to be lost. Tell me what the verse says I got to do to be saved. I've already been lost. I'm not interested in being lost. I don't want to know what I got to do to be lost. Tell me what the verse says I got to do to be saved. And you can't get around that. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And then we got to walk in the light. 1 John 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. That's another answer to that foolishness like, well, do you have to get baptized every time you sin? No. You walk in the light, you're baptized into Christ, you contact His blood when you're baptized, and when you walk in the light, God will keep applying that blood to your soul. You just repent and confess. And God will put the blood back on you. And if you walk in the light, you never leave it. By the way, that's the perseverance of the saints. That's the true security of the believer. That a man can walk in the light and know that he's saved and know that he'll always go, he'll always be in a saved condition. Because 1 John 1 7 teaches that I will sin even while walking in the light. Right? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. That means I can always know I'm saved. That's the security. Of the believer. And it's not an unconditional security. It's a conditional security. Walk in the light. And you know you go to heaven. Faith and works. Matthew 7, 21-23. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the man that goes to heaven. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, they enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And that's the will of the Father. That's the man that's going to go to heaven. And then the reward. Sorry we missed it down there. Hebrews 5 and verse 9. He is the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. That's the reward of God. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Now, now you see how I stuck it to them Texans. I didn't let Texas be heaven. I had to put Alabama on them. Because we all know Alabama is the closest thing to heaven. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. There's the terms of citizenship. God is sovereign. God has the right to determine who is a citizen of His kingdom. And those are the means by which a person becomes and remains a citizen of the kingdom of God. Through hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, repenting of sins, confessing Christ as the Lord, being immersed in water to receive remission of sins, and live faithfully unto death. As the sovereign sovereign ruler of his kingdom and as the universe, does God have the right to do that? Now, question. 
If I obey that, have I negated his sovereignty? Or have I declared it? I've declared it. I've declared my faith in his sovereignty. I believe it's in Luke chapter 7. You have to double check me on this. By verse 29, it speaks about those who justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. What were they saying? Were they, did God need to be justified? No. What they were saying is, we believe that John is preaching God's message and that what God told John to say, we have to obey it. And that's how they justified God. They justified God by obeying God. Now, the question tonight is, do you need to be saved by biblical grace? Because you'll never be saved by Calvinism's grace. You'll never be saved by any grace of man, any doctrine of man. There's only one way to be saved by the grace of God, and that is to obey the will of God, to submit oneself to God, declaring Himself as dead to sin, dead to the world, buried with Christ in baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. If you're here as a child of God and you've not lived up to the covenant that you made with the Lord when you first obeyed, 1 John 1, verse 9, If we'll confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you need to be saved by biblical grace tonight? And if the answer is yes, then we invite you, plead with you, and encourage you to come right now. Together we stand and sing this song together.